All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the Impact Real Hello, Estate and welcome podcast. to the I'm Impact Real Estate Papa. Podcast. Uh, we have we a great connect guest you today. With the most innovative Roberto Arista. and exciting Roberto real estate leaders today. We will show you there are numerous partners to a successful you, career in the real estate industry. Fine, thank and you. And some of your greatest missteps can be turned into thank you for joining us. Um, you're down in Florida return. right now. Here is your host. Uh, I, I don't think COVID hit Florida, right? So it bypassed the entire state, I heard. So that's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I think in Florida they pretended that it wasn't here, but it actually was. <laughs> yeah. Everyone went down there. They're like, all right, let's get out of here. Um, but yeah. you're usually in Massachusetts, right? Generally, that's kind of where you do most that, of your business. That's correct. That's correct. Our office is in Waltham, Massachusetts, which is, which is just a suburban town outside of the city uh, on the 128 Belt, which is one of the ring roads. And um, we actually are moving into a new office building. Sometime in July, we hope um, we it's it's our own building. We we're renovating it, and it took a little longer than we were hoping. But the timing is right because, uh, as far as I'm concerned, COVID is almost over. Right. I think most of us by now are all vaccinated, so we feel a little bit safer. And so we have asked our employees to get ready to come back to work to the office at least. Uh, a few days a week, we're not going to, you know, we're, we're going to implement some sort of a hybrid work model like most companies mm. are mm. Um, and uh, see how it goes. So we're going to start out two, three days a week and go from there. I'm sure some people will prefer coming to the office all the time, while others will prefer working a little bit more at home. Uh, so right. it's an experiment. I'm, I'm, Let's I'm, see how it goes. Everyone's trying to figure that out, right? What's the right balance there? I'm an in the office guy every day. Um, I like it. It kind of breaks it up for me, yeah. but tomorrow I'll be home. I mean, but like, cause I've had my kid, but like generally like I'm in the office every day. So, um, but it's, I can see people who have commutes, all that stuff. They don't want to go in the office or whatever. That's awesome. It's, hey, yeah. I don't know. I don't know the right answer. It's definitely changed. Though, is, right? I don't think there is a right answer. I think what we discovered over this period of time is that, you know, people actually work quite efficiently at home. I think there was a little bump on productivity. Uh, but on the other hand, you suffer uh, the teamwork part and and the corporate culture part because you you, you know you're right. not together, so it's. A little bit but we're hoping to pull that together again. Right. That's yeah. Just to stand this one sec. Yeah, like people don't know the effect of like, all right, we're done. We're not we're not in the office every day. Which is fine now. I mean, for a year or whatever, like, all right, you can keep the culture. What happens 10 years down the line? Is there a corporate culture if you're not in the office ever? Like, that's kind of, you know. No, I, I, I think that's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, we were, we were really kind of, um, I'd say, a bit frightened that we were all going to be working from home because we actually didn't know what was going to happen. And little mm -hmm. by little with the technology that, uh, you know, the the, whether it's Zoom or Teams or any other technology, communication technology that we used, we actually came together quite well and we kept things together. And, you know, we didn't really suffer too many delays on our projects. Uh, you know, thank God uh, they didn't shut down our construction sites because that was really another, you know, part of the worry. Uh, but that didn't yeah. happen. So that was good. And, and then, you know, we begin to realize that maybe corporate culture isn't as important as we thought it might be. Uh, and we actually know from many studies that uh, there are companies who have worked for years remotely, right? I mean, companies that have, you know, that that's been their model from the very beginning. 
So I guess one would have to say that the corporate culture will change accordingly and still be okay because you can still do stuff together. You can still, you know, kind of uh, bring people together in, in meaningful ways, even with, uh, with technology. So we'll see, but you're absolutely right. This is an experiment. We'll see. So you started to get into your business there a little bit. Can you tell everyone what, uh, about Dakota partners, what you guys do? I know you guys were founded in 2006, but I'd love to hear, hear about, you know, what you guys do sure. in day-to-day business. Sure. Um, we are, uh, an affordable housing developer primarily. We do multifamily housing. We do it in several states, the Northeastern states, New York, all the way down to Virginia. We're looking to expand geographically. The affordable housing business, which is really primarily funded through tax credits, uh, housing tax credits, is uh, something that is very competitive. And so if you want to build a business and grow business, you really have to go into different states or more states because one state alone is not going to do it. Uh, unless you just want to stay small and do a project every couple of years. And, and there's many, many people who do that. Uh, we, we didn't choose that path. We chose the growth path. So mm. we've been adding states to our, um, to our geography uh, over the years. And um, as I said, right now we're in four New England states. We don't go to Vermont or, or Maine because they're just too small. Uh, and then in New York State, in Maryland, and Virginia. That's where we are at the moment. We're looking at Ohio and and other states uh, in that vicinity. But we are primarily an affordable housing developer, and we also do some some market rate uh, housing, but all of it is for rent. And then every so often we throw in a a, a for sale project, and we're doing one of those right now. For sale used to be our business. We were founded around the for sale business. Mm-hmm. But in 2008, that kind of disappeared for a while. So we had to reinvent ourselves and we started doing affordable housing. <laughs> well, that's a big, uh, I mean, yeah, that's a big transition, I think. I, I mean, it seems affordable housing is like very, I mean, it's very popular right now, right? It seems to be, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, people seem very interested in it. Um, but back when you started this, I mean, what was the landscape like? Did you even know what affordable housing was like when you got into it? And why did you choose to do affordable? Yeah. So this is an interesting story. <laughs> and I think in, in many ways, it's a, it's a story that, um, that uh, without um, forethought uh, actually kept us in business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so 2006, uh, when we started off, we, we hired a fellow who was still with us. His name is Steve Kaminsky. He had many, many years working in affordable housing, but we hired him as, a, as an acquisition um, a director. And so he was looking for projects for us. And he came to us in uh, probably 2007-ish, said to us he found a project that would not work as a condo project, but we may consider it as a uh, as an affordable housing project with tax credits. And I knew just enough about tax credits, really just from the academic uh, perspective uh, that I said to him, why would we want to do anything so complicated when we can just go to the bank and take our money and use it for real estate, sell and just move on. And he says, well, you know, you ought to take a look at it because uh, it's, it's really not, uh, you know, a business where you're going to make huge profits, but it's a steady business. It's, uh, it's not very, um, 
it's not very sensitive to, to economic cycles. And the programs are strong. They're in every state of the nation. And so you might consider it. It's complicated, but, you know, we'll, we'll get through it. So we applied for our project. It's a competitive process. And um, we didn't get it on our first round. We didn't get it on our second round. We finally got it in our third round. So by 2010, we put a shovel in the ground for that first project. And then from that point forward, we never looked back. We built our business plan around the tax credit business. And we were also using historic tax credits to do historic renovations. So, um, you know, all around, we're using that financing model to do a lot. Um, right now, we have um, a portfolio of about 1,500 units. And in our mm. pipeline today, there's another 600 units. So in the next couple of years, we'll, we'll have 2,000 units in operation in our portfolio. Was there, so there, I mean, it was a lot, so you're saying it was a lot easier than you thought it was going to be? No, <laughs> to not at it? all. <laughs> no? Not, not, <laughs> not one single bit. Not one single bit. No. The affordable housing business is, you know, the tax credit, whatever you want to call it, is the most complicated real estate business that you could ever imagine. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's a lot of regulation around it. Um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of partners in the deals, uh, banks, uh, of course, investors who could also be banks, agencies. I mean, it just goes on and on. It's, it's actually very expensive to build because the agencies require standards that are higher than, uh, you know, what a normal developer would do for market rate housing. Um, and, and it's expensive because it's complicated. So the legal fees can be pretty, uh, pretty substantial. And, um, and it's, and it is very complicated. I mean, there is not one deal, whether you want to call it plain vanilla or not, there's not one deal that's easy. They're all difficult and you just slog through them and get them done. So if you yeah, ask like, you, so take me to Sorry, but you like it. Why did you keep doing? Why did you Why did you keep doing it? I think we keep doing it because <laughs> we figured it out. And yeah. once you figure this business out, you say we're not going to throw that knowledge out the window. We're going to keep plugging away. We built a good reputation, and the reputation is really with all our investors and the agencies. We're well respected now in the states that we operate, and we continue getting projects. And I think we win the projects because we're smart about what we pick, because we know how to, you know, navigate those waters and understand what the states are actually looking for. Because they, what they do is they issue, they um, publish a what they call a, a QAP every year, a qualified allocation plan that basically tells you, it, it gives you a roadmap as to where they, you know, the state wants to do those projects. And there's a scoring system, so you self-score. You make sure you get a high score. You don't just submit a project because you love it. You submit a project because it scores high. And so we, you know, we, we do all those, um, we'll do all those things to make sure that we win the projects. We don't want to be wasting time, right? We want to do, yeah. we want to win the projects. And so we've gotten very good at it. Uh, our hit rate is very high. Uh, you know, we maybe lost one or two projects in all these years. In other words, we didn't get them. Um, uh, you know, allocated or, or awarded, but, uh, but the rest of them we did. So, you know, once you kind of have honed your skills in this business, you, you don't really want to get out of it because it's, um, it's a steady business and uh, it's, it's, it, obviously it's also very 
mission driven, which we've which we've appreciated over the years because you start seeing the impact that you're having on communities when you you know when you do these affordable housing projects and you see the people who come in and live in them and uh, they tell their stories, which are all great stories to hear. And so you become passionate uh, and you become passionate and compassionate <laughs> at the same time uh, because it opens right. up a new world for you. So we've really, you know, we, we're really not looking back. I mean, this is, this is our, this is our bread and butter and our mission. That's awesome. And you mentioned that you, you have a good hit rate. Like do you have, do you just, you know what you're good at? Like what's the particular, what's a What's a typical deal for Dakota? What are you guys looking for? So I guess it depends on the state. Uh, It depends on the state. In affordable housing, there's two kinds of credits. Uh, One is a 9% credit. What's a 4% credit? Don't want to get too technical here, but the 9% credit produces more equity. The 4% credit produces less equity. Generally speaking, 4% uh, deals are larger than 9% deals. Because on 9% deals, they give you a limited amount of credits, even though they produce more equity. And so you size your project depending on how much equity you get. So how much, you know, the credits that you're getting. So for example, in Massachusetts, there's a limit of a million dollars in credits, a million dollars for 10 years, that's $10 million. So that's really what you're getting. It's $10 million of of equity. If somebody's paying 90 cents for that uh, credit, you're getting $9 million in equity. So there's, I, I, I said it sort of loosely that you get $10 million because there was a time when you were getting a dollar, a dollar for the credit, which seems absurd when you think about it because people don't buy credits because, uh, you know, because it's just fun and games. They buy credits because it's uh-huh. going to save them money on their taxes, right? So if you're paying a dollar right. for a dollar, then what, what are you saving? Well, the truth is that these, yeah. you know, the investors get all the, the losses and depreciation. They get all that stuff there. So it does give them a return. So mm-hmm. those are the two basic credits. So generally speaking, the 9% credit, you're going to do a project that's anywhere between 50 and 70 units. On a 4% credit, you're able to do projects that are 100, 120 units. Those are generally that. And that's what we look for. We look for the largest projects we can possibly do. Uh, because it doesn't pay to do a small project, right? It's the same brain damage, and right. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, know, you don't want to waste your time on small projects. And so you're in these particular states. You're looking to possibly get in the new states. So I imagine one of the difficulties of starting in a new state is just developing the relationships there. Is that correct? Because it seems like it's pretty relationship-driven as far as like getting the credits and the municipalities and all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I think um, it, when you get into a new state, it takes a little bit of legwork. You don't just jump in, right? You do go down and you meet with the agencies. You develop a little bit of a relationship, and you know you you tell them who you are, your success, et cetera, et cetera. And generally, agencies are very welcoming of outside developers because they want fresh blood mm-hmm. in the state. It's always good to keep the competition going, right? So, um, so that's kind of the first step. The second step, of course, is looking for the land or the building or whatever it is that you're, you're looking for in the right places. And so mm-hmm. we've, we've gotten tools to do that. And these are, you know, uh, general GIS tools that we've assembled uh, that uh, allow us to pinpoint locations where projects score the highest 
And then we've got, you know, a couple of people who scour, scour for land and talk to brokers or talk to owners. And, you know, we just little by little, it's, it's, as you know, it's not, um, you know, it's not rocket science. There's just a lot of legwork to be done. Yeah. And so then you, you know, you find a deal, you tie up a deal and then you start your due diligence process and hopefully uh, it all works out and uh, you proceed with the project, you get it awarded and you, and you move on. Um, as I said, when we pick a project, we try to pick it well because we don't want to be wasting our time and our money. And so, um, you know, we, we do it very carefully. Um, and I think we've gotten quite good at it because as I said, our hit rate is, is pretty high. Um, but, but it's, you know, it's that kind of work. It's not, it's not glamorous. It's, uh, mm. it just requires, you know, rolling up your sleeves and, and searching and, you know, pounding on doors and doing all that. On the other hand, because we're fairly well known, we also get a lot of people coming to us like brokers and even municipalities that might have RFPs, you know, do you want to participate? Here's another thing for you to look at, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how we get a lot of repeat business or, or, or opportunities. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So it's, they'll come to you and not you just come to them. Right. Um, exactly. And what type of land do you look for to do a deal? Like, is there a certain, like, is it in your transit? Is it in like urban centers? Is it like, what are the key characteristics? Well, I think um, all of the above. Uh, I think one very big push these days is transit-oriented development, which is what you were talking about. So having a, whether it's a bus stop or commuter line nearby is important. In fact, uh, you know, the, the agencies will score you on that. Uh, so, so typically it is an important thing. Uh, we, we generally stay outside of the urban core. We, we like to be more on the, uh, call it the suburban side of things, uh, just because the, um, you know, that the land entitlement process tends to be somewhat easier. Mm. And I, I say that relatively speaking, because uh, the entitlement process is always difficult, but, um, <laughs> and sometimes small towns can be more difficult than bigger towns. Uh, but generally right. speaking, suburban towns are a little bit more welcoming because they want the economic activity. They want this, they want that, you know, so, so it's, so that's our sweet spot. Um, you know, there's, the competition in downtown areas tends to be quite high. And so we stay away from that. Gotcha. And then you mentioned about the, the certain, the tenants, is there a certain, like, I know there's in the affordable space, there's all different income levels and like, is there a particular yeah. type of project or, or, or tenant that you have or a tenant be the appropriate word, right? Yeah, I, I think, as you said, there's uh, different income levels that you serve. Um, generally, in a 9% deal, uh, it starts off with a, you know, sort of a few units at a very low income level, and then it graduates from there. Generally speaking, you're, the most of the units are in the 50 to 60% of the area median income. Basically, that means if the area median income is 100, right? hundred thousand dollars a year for a household, then these people would have to make no more than 50 to $60,000 a year to qualify. And then they pay mm. rent according to their, their, what their income is. And that's generally a third of their income. So if, if a family is making 60, 
they would be expected to pay 20 on rent, which is what they, you know, what they would end up doing if they come live in a, in a property of ours. Awesome. And then, so you, you guys self-perform your own development. Um, are you, do you have a management company? You like you have to construction, you do your own construction too? We do our own construction. Yeah. We do both the development side and the construction side. Uh, and the reason we do the construction is first, we know it, we've done it from the very beginning. And secondly, it really helps control your destiny in terms of costs. Um, now we can't do construction everywhere, right? Because mm. our reach is pretty wide. Although we are building our own in Virginia, uh, we may not build our own in New York because New York is somewhat of a different animal. So we may team up with local contractor. But the goal is in the end to try to do all of our own construction. First come in, team up with somebody else, learn the business and then do it ourselves. But we do want to continue doing our, const our own construction. Gotcha. And then, so, and then you, you third party your management to like a property management company that specializes in affordable. Cause there's like social services involved, right? Like, in, in more there, than just there are, yeah, there are. So, so there's, we do use, we don't do our own property management. We have a third party property manager and generally we try to stick with the same one if they have that geographic reach, but sometimes you can't because they don't go that far. It's always easier to work with one party as opposed to three, four different parties um, and they are all specialized. You have to, you know, you have to have your licenses, you have to have your training, you have to have all those things there. And, and it's somewhat of a thankless business. It's not a business that we're that interested in. And there's other parties that do it a lot better than we do. Um, and then on top of that, there might be a component of special services. So for those special services, it's not always that property manager that's doing them. There might be a nonprofit involved that does those services. So you're paying that nonprofit something separately for those services for certain, you know, certain profile of residents. And, um, you know, because there, there, there's always, there's a big push for um, housing the um, homeless. I want to say homeless, but there's a new term, uh, which is the unhoused, the unhoused. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is, this is something that I heard recently. They said, you know, homeless is no longer politically correct. It's really the unhoused. And huh. so, yeah, so you have um, this push to produce units for the unhoused. And, and these are people who generally uh, struggle in life. And so they come with special services, or at least you have gotcha. to provide special services. That's one example. Right. Yeah. And that's a whole nother game, right? Not a game, but that's it a whole is. nother arena. It's yeah. I've, I've kind of touched on that in my life and through work. So yeah, yeah it's kind of, it's fascinating. That's one of the reasons I like affordable housing so much. It's like, all right, you got the building of it, putting the capital stack together and all that kind of stuff. But then it's all of a sudden, once you get it built and have a tenant in there, it's a whole nother thing, right? It's like, <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's, it's more that's so right. than, yeah, it's like this whole nother world with services and management. It's, it's interesting yeah, it takes a life and getting and then getting like, yeah, the, 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 the lease up is different. It's totally different. Um, compliance. Cool. So how, I mean, how did you get into real estate? Did you, were you always like, man, I can't wait to be a developer or like, did you just fall into <laughs> it? Or like, can you tell, tell us a little, did you grow up in Massachusetts? Sure. Tell me, tell me about you, please. Sure. So, so I actually was born in Italy, came to, to okay, Massachusetts cool. for, yeah, for uh, university 
And uh, then after graduating, I, I was my undergraduate degrees in engineering. So I became an engineer for a while, uh, got bored with it, and uh, then got into construction for a while on the construction side of things. But I always had this real estate itch. And so eventually, eventually I went back to school twice. I got a master's in business, then a master's in real estate development from MIT. And then after that, I sort of launched into um, uh, you know, real estate for myself. I, I teamed up with a bunch of partners, three or four other partners. We founded our first company. We did a bunch of residential development. Then I met Mark Daigle, my partner at Dakota, and uh, we decided to team up. And so we sort of let go of our old companies and started this new one, and the rest is history. But I, I did always have this kind of real estate itch. Uh, I, I always loved building uh, buildings. Uh, I, I always loved architecture, and I always imagined me, myself one day uh, being a developer. So I somehow I got there. <laughs> so, what do you think? Is it, is, was it what you imagined? I, I, um, of course, there are many twists and turns, right? I mean, you never, you never land exactly where you might want to be, or where you imagine uh, to to be. Uh, I did not imagine. Uh, that I was going to become an affordable housing developer. That that was really a, a twist yeah. of fate in a certain sense. But I did imagine residential real estate because it's something that I, uh, I it just feels like I have an affinity for. Uh, commercial real estate, industrial real estate, other things like that did not interest me as much. I always right. loved housing. So in that you're, respect... I could, I could I, tell you're an engineer. I could tell you're an engineer. How could you tell? Is it written my, on my, my, my father? My, fa- my father's an engineer. I spent my entire life around engineers and blueprints. And stuff. So I was like, I was like, this guy's, I think this guy might be an engineer. So, yeah. I yeah. feel sorry for you then. <laughs> <laughs> great people. Um, that's awesome. So that's a great story. And then now you've built this very successful, I mean, people know Dakota, right? I mean, it's a big name. So, yeah, um, yeah, I, I think so. I think this year we made, um, I think top 50 of the of the affordable housing finance list. Uh, I think we were number Congrats. 40. And I think this coming year we may actually break into the top 20 based on our volume. And wow. our goal our goal someday is to to make it into the top 10. I think we'll probably get there in a couple of years, couple 3 years. That'd be awesome. Congratulations. That's our goal. That's our goal. But, you know, I mean, the, the fact is that, that growth isn't necessarily what drives us. I think what drives us is building affordable housing. We just we just love this business so much and know how much good it does that, um, you know, we really want to do it. The other component of this is that, um, you know, we're, we're very much into sustainable um, uh, construction. So, you know, we, we started out, our first building was a LEED certified building. Um, and now we're doing passive house and I don't know if you know much about passive house. But I, don't know what that, I don't know what that is now. Yeah. Passive house is, is, um, basically a very, very tight envelope. And so heating and cooling costs are extremely low, very, very efficient buildings. And, um, and then, you know, the other pushes towards net zero, which is, you know, you're basically producing what you're using. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a combination of solar and, you know, other stuff like that. 
Um, and so that's what we're, we're sort of pushing for uh, at, at some point. And by the way, the agencies are pushing us in the same direction. It's not like we're blazing the trail necessarily. Yeah. They, are, they do encourage and give points for, I go back to the points, right? The points are always very important. Yeah, so yeah. if we want to earn more points, we have to do more stuff. And part of the stuff is uh, doing sustainable housing. Do you do more nine percent deals or four percent deals? Do you feel, or just like a mix yeah, or whatever? We do more. We do more nines. We do more nines. Uh, the four percent deals have been harder to make work because they require more uh, what we call soft subsidies. Uh, it's basically loans from the state that come almost interest free, um, and not all states have uh, enough money f- to close those gaps. Uh, but uh, since the beginning of the year, they fixed the 4% rate. And again, not getting too mm. technical. The 4% used to be floating. And so it was always less than 4%. And if it's less than 4%, you're going to get less credits. Now they're fixing it. They fixed it to 4 which means now you have certainty of the amount of credits you're going to get. And you can, you know, you can work on a deal and and know with a little bit more certainty where, you know, where your, your needs are going to be in terms of funding. Whereas when you were working with a floating rate, you didn't always know that, right? And so as you're marching along, your gap of uh, funding may open up and you you may not find it, right? So you might find yourself in a tough spot. That's really the reason why we haven't done more force, but we are focused on them now. Yeah, makes sense. Awesome, man. Well, are you ready for the next part of the interview called The Hot Seat? Oh, geez. Uh, I don't know anything about the hot seat. Oh! The hot seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities, reduce turnover, and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So. They outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple days a week and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your, for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at kkreset.com. K-K-R-E-S-E-T.com. It's very hot. <laughs> it's very hot. <laughs> it gets hot. You're in Florida, so it's already hot, I think. It is already hot, yeah. Uh, all right. Question number one. Do you have any book recommendations? It doesn't have to necessarily be about affordable housing, but I mean, if it's something relevant or about business or life, is any books that you would recommend, recommend any of the listeners? So I, um, I'm in a book group with a bunch of old guys like myself. Oh, nice. And, uh, one of the last books that we read was called the song of Achilles. And it's a, uh, it's a book by an author called, um, Madeline Miller. And this is a reimagining or a reinterpretation of the Iliad, Homer's Iliad. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was um, excellent because it brought to life characters that when you read the Iliad, when you're in high school, you have absolutely no uh, connection to, right? 
So she really humanized all of the characters. And um, it was a very good book. And we all enjoyed it. And I recommend it. It's, uh, it, it, it's definitely different. It's not uh, yeah. you know, your run-of-the-mill novels. <laughs> I need to get in the book group. Um, all right. Question number two. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? I'm sure there's some 20-year-olds um, out there listening. Yeah. I, I would say be patient uh, because unfortunately life comes with a lot of twists and turns and you may lay out a plan that um, either takes longer than you think or, or you want it to take uh, or it goes off course and for, you know, for reasons that you can't control. I think that when I was younger in my twenties, I was always determined to do stuff, right? Get somewhere, you know, just accomplish. Yeah. And unfortunately, uh, it, it just doesn't always work out that way. You know, I going back to, uh, you know, getting into real estate, I thought I was going to get into real estate a lot sooner than I did, but I actually didn't. It took me, you know, quite a while to get there. I wasn't, I wasn't a kid. Right. And so I would say for the 20 year olds, you know, work on, um, you know, work, work on your, your, let's say your, your, your skills, both soft and hard and have a general plan, but never be, um, how do you say it? So wedded to it that you become extremely disappointed if it doesn't go your way. Cause unfortunately that's what life is about. Yeah. Sometimes, but then, then sometimes it doesn't go your way. That could be the best thing for you, right? It, it could be the best thing. That's right. You never know. <laughs> um, cool. Well, what, so now, what kind of skills do you generally look for? I'm sure there's people out there looking to get into the affordable housing industry, whether it's acquisitions or development. But like, what sort of skill sets do you think they should be learning in order to be successful in this in this industry? So this industry is um, so unique that it actually has, uh, I would say, a scarcity of qualified people, and um, you know that the, the the technical side of this business is very complicated. It's not like looking at an ordinary pro forma and you say, okay, so this is it. You know, this is simple. This is that, this is that. It's just full of complications. And so the, the part that is most important, at least when we're looking for a development director, these are the project managers that manage these projects. We look for somebody who is generally um, seasoned you know, four, five, six years in the business uh, because our shop doesn't do a great job at training. You know, we're not a large corporation where we put people on a track and we train them. And so that's what we look for, uh, first of all. But I think the other part that we want to find in people or, or look for in people is what I call, I call, I don't call it. This is something that I don't know if you know Pat Lencioni. He's a, he's a business uh, guru. He's written many books, no. but anyway, he calls it hungry, humble, smart. So okay. we look for people who are hungry, humble, and smart. And I'll just explain in you know three seconds what that means. Hungry means that they have ambition, and you can tell that they have ambition. Humble means that they're not afraid to make mistakes, and they can admit to making mistakes. And the third is smart, which is not the typical, uh, not what you think it is. Smart means being smart about relating to people, 
In other words, soft skills. You, mm-hmm. and, and it's so important in our business for people to relate to other people because that, that's really what it is. You're, 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 you know, you're always in the middle of, you're not working in a little cubicle by yourself all day long running numbers. You're running numbers and then you're talking to people. You're working on teams. You're working with ex- external parties. You're working with agencies. You're working with lawyers. You're working with architects, engineers. So, you know, you need to know how to guide and, and assemble the team and, 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 you know, make it go effectively well. And for that, you need to be smart. And, um, you know, it's sort of like, um, what do they call that? Emotional intelligence as opposed to your EQ, right? EQ. EQ, EQ, exactly. These are not these are not easy skills to identify in people, uh, but we we try to do our best. After we get through the technical side of things, we then try to figure out whether they're humble, hungry, and smart. I like that. That's awesome. Now the name of this podcast is the Impact Real Estate Podcast. What impact does your real estate have on the world? Well, I would like to say that it has a, a very big impact on ordinary people, people who are, you know, not necessarily all well off because it gives them a, a good roof to uh, over their heads and an affordable roof over their heads. And I think that's extremely important. Uh, you know, there's in most of this country and most of the urban areas or close to the urban areas, real estate's always pricing these people out. And so they have to move further and further out. The public transportation is not that great. They can't go to their jobs that easily, you know, all of those things. So what we do is, you know, giving these people homes closer to where their works are, their, you know, their, 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 uh, yeah, their place of work is. And so um, it's important. It also gives them a, a community that they live in. Um, and so we, we, we think that's, of course, this is not, something that we invented. Uh, but as I said, it's, it's become our mission and, and we're very devoted to it. The other side of it is, which I spoke about is, is sustainability. Um, you know, obviously we think it's very important to this world where we are today to build uh, buildings that don't use too much energy or, uh, you know, in the ideal world, use no energy at all. Uh, or at least create their own energy so that um, we don't have to continue using hydrocarbons and warming up the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, Roberto Arista, co-founder and president of Dakota Partners. Thank you for coming on the podcast. That was awesome. Great story. Thanks Thank so much. You. Thank you for tuning in to the Impact Real Estate Podcast. If you like what you heard, hit the subscribe button and share it with your network. Follow us on social media at tbg.realestate. Have a great day.